We believe that not just babies are born, mothers are born too. We're your hosts, Laura, a labor and delivery nurse and aspiring midwife, and Melissa, a mother and doula. Welcome to Mother Birth, a space for thought-provoking and inspirational conversations about birth and the deep exploration of what it means to become a mother. Hey, welcome to the show. Today's guest shares the story of how pregnancy did not go as planned. At 33 weeks, a serious illness threatened her life and led to an emergency C-section. Daniel shares about her recovery and choosing to get pregnant again, knowing she was at risk for developing the same health conditions. We also talk about maternal and infant mortality here in the U.S. and abroad, and the disparities between access to women's health care around the world. Hi, it's Lara and Lisa here at Mother Birth. Thanks for joining us today, and I'm really excited about the guest we have today. Um, it's a friend of mine that goes back to college again. Man, I just really got to meet a lot of cool people when I was in college, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, Danielle Mayfield, she's here to talk a little bit about her story and becoming a mom, um, and also just the great work that she's doing with women in this country. So, Danielle, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and... Um, maybe a little bit about your family? Sure, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on here. I don't get to talk about these things often in my life, actually, in like a detailed way, so it's kind of exciting for me. Yeah. But yeah, my name is Danielle Mayfield, and I live here in Portland, Oregon, but I kind of live in a different city. Like, it took me 30 minutes to get here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I live on the very outer edges of Portland um, because for the past decade, I have lived and worked in primarily refugee communities in the U.S., both in Portland and in Minneapolis. But I'm back now living on the edges of the city, and um, I'm a writer, and I am an ESOL teacher. So I primarily teach English to women in these communities in America. Um, Right now I'm teaching a class at my daughter's elementary school for the parents. So every Friday morning it's basically me and a bunch of moms from about 10 different countries get together and hang out, drink coffee, and do English and get to know each other so it's really great and really fun Um, but yeah sometimes it feels like I live in a different Portland Um, okay but about my family so I'm married and I have two kids I have a six-year-old daughter who's in first grade and then I have a 20-month-old son who is awesome and (laughs) so grumpy right now (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of kids are grumpy we're in the, the throes of the rain that's true because yeah. they're both super grumpy I'm super grumpy I don't know which came first but it's like a perpetuating cycle right now so. our son is pretty grumpy right now okay. too okay yeah it's irrational just no there's no explanation right right I've given up trying to figure it out mm-hmm. just trying to roll with it so yeah mm-hmm. cool so we'd love to hear you know obviously your story um I know little little just tiny tiny snippets of it I know Laura knows probably a little more than I do um, but you can kind of start where you want to start in terms of your journey to motherhood. And I know you had some complications during pregnancy. I don't know if it was both of your pregnancies. So why don't you just start where you want to start? Yeah. So let's start with when I um, got pregnant with my daughter. My husband and I had been married for a little less than two years. And we were just like, let's just try. I'm sure it'll take forever, but it didn't. And so I was like pregnant while working, you know, a minimum wage job and trying to finish up school. My husband, same situation. So also I was um, living at that, actually at that time in low income housing with um, a lot of refugee families. And so in my free time, I was running a homework club and just doing like spring break camps, um, English classes. So I was super, super busy. And I just decided like, yeah, so I'm pregnant. I'm just going to keep doing everything. Like, Mm -hmm. don't stop until the day your baby comes out, right? So that was my mentality. But I did not enjoy being pregnant. And up until that point, most of the stories I'd heard were were people really enjoying it. My own mom had four kids, and she just, like, always talked about how much she loved it and how good she felt. And I just never felt good. And um, I remember some of the refugee women, specifically women from um, Bhutan, they stopped um, wanting to do things with me probably when I was about six months pregnant. Mm-hmm. And they kept pointing to my ankles and they kept telling me, like, you have to sit down, you have to drink more water. And I just thought it was so weird. They, they started to refuse to go on outings with me. Like, I planned this big um, <laughs> trip to the beach and they all just said, no, we're not going to go with you. 
And I was like, why? And they just kept pointing to my belly and kept pointing to my ankles. And I was like, that is so weird. I'm fine. We can do this. But they just totally refused. And um, now looking back, I'm like, did they just know like yeah. that something was wrong with me? And I was such like an American and I had never really never even entered my mind that something could go wrong. Right. Like I am a privileged white middle class American, like nothing bad is going to happen to me. Right. So I guess this is leading up to the fact that something kind of bad did happen. Um, mm. I again, like I said, I didn't feel good. I was working at a fancy chocolate shop at a mall downtown and I was on my feet for like nine hours a day and I just didn't feel very good um and I was like also doing my teaching practicum at a community college all this stuff I remember I woke up one morning and my face was so swollen like I couldn't open my eyes oh wow and I just thought this can't be normal but I had gone I had been seeing a midwife through um a hospital here and I was planning on delivering in the hospital but not with any doctors or anybody present just the midwife would be there and mm-hmm. all this stuff so my midwife just kept saying you're fine you're fine and so I called her that morning my husband had already gone to work so I texted him a picture of my face and he was like you look hilarious da, da, da. but I was like well I'm gonna call anyways <laughs> it's, I know it's funny to you but maybe maybe it's not maybe it's not funny <laughs> he that's all he said you look hilarious which I was like when you are pregnant and you already feel really big and then yeah. You're like, I was like gaining so much weight. Like, I, I think I gained 10 pounds in that last week I was pregnant, which, again, that's not normal. Yeah. But I just thought, oh, my gosh, stop eating chocolate, Danielle, which I wasn't even eating that much. But um, so I called my midwife, but I had to leave a message for her. And she ended up calling me back. And she was like, you know, you're fine. Just rest. Da, da, da. But I couldn't rest because I was going to work. Um, but what turned out, this is so crazy. She actually was on vacation in Central Oregon, and so um, the call had been routed through the hospital to her. So she called back and told me not to worry about anything. But the doctor who was, like, on call at the hospital overheard my message, and he called me. And he said, I just want you to stop by, and mm-hmm. um, let's just take your blood pressure. So looking back, I'm like, if he hadn't done that, like, yeah. I don't know what would have happened. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go garage selling with my mom before work. And we'll just stop at the hospital on the way. And so I ended up, you know, getting my blood pressure checked. And they were like, okay, well, it's pretty high, so you need to wait here for 30 minutes. They took it again. It was even higher. And then they're like, okay, we're admitting you. Um, So then they admitted me, and then they started doing tests. And And you're still around six months at this point? Actually, no, at this point I was 33 weeks. Okay. So fast forward to that. So I'm 33 weeks, and I was just still like – not quite getting it. Yeah. They were like, you can get a sandwich for free from the hospital. I'm like, this is awesome. I'm like a free sandwich and I'm going <laughs> to sit down for a while. Okay. <laughs> Again, my husband's at work. I can't really get a hold of him. But within the space of a few hours, my blood pressure um, kept continuing to rise like pretty quickly. And um, they started looking at the blood work and everything. And it's kind of hard for me. I can't really go through it, you know, like symptom by symptom or mm-hmm. anything. But at some point in the afternoon, they were like, yeah, you're really sick, and you're not leaving until you have your baby, which was shocking to me. Like, we didn't even own a crib <laughs> because right. I thought had we all this had, time. I thought we had two yeah. months, you know. So, so yeah, at that point, um, the doctor came in, and he said, you know, you're not going to be working with a midwife anymore. So I just – it took me a while, but slowly I had to kind of give up all these things I thought I was going to have, like, a midwife birth and eventually it became clear that I was um, going to have to have a c-section because the doctor he he just kept saying like well we can try and induce you but I just don't think it's gonna go anywhere and it was this very weird waiting game of trying to keep the baby in as long as possible and they gave me you know a steroid shot for the baby's lungs but also like managing my symptoms because what I ended up having was something called HELP syndrome, H-E-L-L-P. And Laura, you probably know more about it than I do because okay. it wasn't very, it wasn't even explained to me. And now yeah. looking back, I'm like, was it just because I was young? I think I was 26 years old. And just, again, never even crossed my mind that any of this could be happening to me. And so looking back, it's almost like I was a child in this situation. Like people right. were just telling me, what's going to happen next. And I didn't really have any control over it. Um, But yeah, so they were basically saying like, 
well, first of all, they had me on this really terrible medication to control my blood pressure called uh, magnesium. And even to this day, when I'm really, really grumpy and irritable, I I say I have magnesium brain because that is how it made me feel. Just like crawling out of your skin, so grumpy. It makes your vision blurry, makes you feel really, really lethargic. So I was on that in order to not have a stroke, but they were kind of waiting to see how my platelets were doing and how my liver enzymes were doing. And finally got to the point where, and I was in the hospital for over a day, so we got a whole extra day for the baby, which was great. Um, But finally they were like, your blood platelets are falling, so we have to do the C-section now or else you would bleed out while we were Mm -hmm. doing it. And so um, I went in and had a C-section. And they had told me, like, the cure for help is delivery. So I was, like, really holding on to that. Like, okay, as soon as I have this baby, I'm going to start to feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not exactly what happened. I still felt I still felt so, so sick um, for the week after my baby was born. And um, I was only a patient, though, in the hospital for a few days afterwards. And then they discharged me. But um, my baby was four pounds. Mm. She was, I mean, she did awesome for being born, you know, two months early. But... The hospital we were at, and they didn't tell me this till later, they don't actually have a NICU. And so if she hadn't done well, she would have been transported to another hospital. And I would not have been able to join her because I was in such an unstable condition. And again, this is something they didn't tell me going into it was that there's actually a huge probability that we would be separated. Um, But that didn't end up happening, which is great. That's kind of crazy. I know. Especially since there was such a high probability of it. Yeah, because they were like, by the time I was checked in, and they were like, oh, this is so serious, I was too sick to transport to a hospital that did have a NICU. Again, they didn't tell me that until afterwards. (laughs) So, and maybe that's good. One less thing for me to worry about. So this all happened within a day? Is that... I think it was was maybe 36 hours. Okay. Yeah. Um, And so my daughter was at this little... It's not a NICU. What would they call it? Again, probably a level two nursery or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And so she was there for two weeks. And for the first... And they let us stay at the hospital the whole time, just like in empty rooms, which is really cool. Hmm. Um, but it was it was a hard entry into motherhood because the first week I, I couldn't do anything. And so I was just hooked up to all these monitors. And so was my baby. And so when we... When they did try and let me hold her, it was just a tangle of wires and really hard. And um, obviously she was pretty young. And so breastfeeding, I knew, was going to be a challenge. And that turned out to be, like, one of the bigger challenges. And she never actually was able to do it. Um, So I don't know how much detail we want to go into here. But I will just say that, you know, one of the silver linings, I guess, was um, my husband had to be the one to do everything for mm-hmm. my daughter so he like was the first one to change her the first one to give her a bottle you know the first one to hold her and do skin to skin and I don't know even to this day it seems like they have such an intense bond and like from day one he is just like in the trenches mm-hmm. and we were like completely partners in this story which maybe I don't know in my mind I've just been reading so much about natural birth and the mother-child bond and breastfeeding and so it was all about me and the baby, honestly, in mm-hmm. my mind. And then my reality happened, and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even breastfeed. I couldn't do anything, right? And just my husband was the one who got to do it all. And it was funny because all the nurses were, like, obsessed with him and thought he was, like, so <laughs> My husband's younger than me, so he was, like, 23. Yeah. He's, like, wearing his little hoodie, like, taking care of, like, the tiniest baby in the hospital. <laughs> and they just, like, were obsessed with him. <laughs> I can picture that. Yeah. He's pretty lovable. He is. He's character. a lovable guy. Yeah. Well, and I think when whenever men are really engaged and present, like, the, like female care providers are all over that. Like, yeah, that's yeah. been my experience with Chase, too. Like, even just this last baby we had, the all the midwives were like, Chase is our favorite. That was our favorite <laughs> birth ever. Chase, can you come to all the births with us? Like, <laughs> oh they just gosh. they just eat it up. It's Which true. Is, you know, just probably because they see. So yeah, it's just an affirmation yeah. that you chose these engaged humans to do life with, which is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I think I mean you know, obviously being a person who works with people in the hospital who are having kind of emergency situations, it can be really difficult to really difficult to share that with somebody, but really difficult to watch someone try to process that. And then, like you said, put that on top of the fact that you have a different brain, you have a magnesium brain, right, right, and you have like. I was supposed to be at work today, not having a baby mm-hmm. happening inside your 
you know, in your mind and in your heart too, I think. But yeah, I think it can be hard. Like you were saying, like all your preparation had been for this one outcome and then you would, you know, something happened one day and all those outcomes changed for you. Do you feel like when you went home, how did you feel? So now you have this tiny baby. Now you're, you're quote unquote healthy. Your, your problem is begin to resolve. Now she's healthy enough to go home. Yeah, I think that's when, well, that's kind of what, well, three weeks into it is when um, I had been trying to pump and just, I I lost my entire milk supply like three weeks into it. And, you know, pumping is like every three hours, then you have to wash everything and like on top of like taking care of a preemie, it was a lot of work. And so (laughs) there's this tiny part of me that's like, okay, great. <laughs> Can I stop doing this? Yeah. But yeah. The 95% of me was like, no, I'm a good Portlander and I am going to like give my baby my milk. Right. Yeah. But, um, it never came back. And I went to one of my checkups and they were just like, your body has suffered so much trauma. Like it's, it's never coming back. You need to kind of deal with that. And so it was funny. That is like where I put all my emotions. Right. I mm-hmm. never really processed the birth and, my own brush with mortality. Instead, I just was like, I can't breastfeed, you know, and that's where the emotions really came out. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was kind of funny. And at the same time, it was a really sweet time too, just like me and my husband and this tiny little baby. And you just, we just sort of started to figure it out. Like I always thought we were going to be co-sleepers. I thought we were going to do all that. And my baby was like, no, I don't want to co-sleep with you. Like, she wouldn't sleep with us. Like, she would just grunt and move around and da-da-da. And I don't know if it's because she was used to, like, the hospital. <laughs> Maybe. <gasps> yeah. So she wanted to be in her own crib. And so all that stuff, it was just so funny. Like, nothing was, like, I was picturing it. And yet we still made it. Like, I think that was the big thing I kept thinking. Like, we're making it. We're doing it. We're surviving. And even when it felt kind of hard, I was like, those 16-year-olds on MTV can do this. Like, I can do this. I can do this. Like, for some reason, that was such a cover. I've never watched a show. But I'm like, there's a show called 16 and Pregnant. So I know that they take care of I their babies. I think that's a real I feeling. I think that that's like Isn't a that real. Funny? No, it is. I think it's a real grounding feeling for people that it's like, yeah. whether it's like the esoteric, like all women have done this in no, all of time, which yeah. is like this like beautiful feeling. And then there's also just like people do this who legitimately like drink Mountain Dew and eat Cheetos yes. and everyone lives. That is where I went for sure. Yeah. Yes. I just think of single moms. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. I just think of single moms. I'm like, because I have a super helpful, engaged partner, mm-hmm. and I just think of women that do this completely on their own and go back to work, like we were talking about yesterday. You know, at two weeks and or three days. You know, and it's I just that's yeah that's th- that can be really helpful to get you through those right. tricky moments right. for sure. Exactly, and you know, one interesting thing also to my story is like I mentioned earlier so I teach English and um, one thing that comes up in a lot of my classes and this happened maybe a few years after my daughter was born we moved to Minneapolis and I started working with um, refugee women from East Africa who for some reason or another they were living in a shelter um, downtown in Minneapolis and so they would all have to come to my English class five mornings a week in order to get benefits so None of them spoke English. None of them had actually even been to school in their own country. So it was it was quite it was quite the experience this class. But I I had this experience of we were all talking about how many kids we had, and most of them are from Muslim communities, so they have a lot of kids because they think that kids are a blessing from God. And so we all went around the room and shared how many kids we had. And then this one woman at the end, she was really trying to communicate something to me, and she was like, "I have seven kids." I'm like, "Okay, great." I have seven kids. She's like, but I have two kids in Africa. And I'm like, okay, so like two of your kids had to stay in Africa. Maybe they're older, maybe they got married. And then you came here. And she's just like, no, no, two kids in Africa. And then she's sort of like pantomiming like on the floor. And I was like, oh, did two of your children die? And she's like, yes, yes. You know, Mm -hmm. I have seven kids, but I have two children in Africa who died. So I was like, okay, so you said I, I've had nine children, right? Then all of a sudden, every single woman in my class wants to go around again because they all have children to add to the count. Wow. And I was just kind of standing you know, up in the front of the, of the room as the teacher just being like, we can't just, we can't just move on. We can't just like, keep learning English. 
Yeah. But that's, I don't speak their language. Like they don't yeah. speak English. Like there's nothing to do except try and acknowledge their reality as best as we can. But every single one of them had lost a child in Africa. And from what I could gather, most of it was due to, um, like if their child got sick, usually due to the conditions they were living in, either in refugee camps or maybe they were on their way to refugee camps, you know, the child would die of dehydration within a matter of hours. Like the child would get sick and then in six hours would have passed away due to vomiting and diarrhea. And it just made me think, this, you know, is where I, I live in America and this does not happen. Yeah. You know, and I think that is the, that is the longer term, not consequence, longer term reality for me having my two experiences in childbirth has been, it, it just has really shown a light on the inequalities of the world and how I am lucky. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to really reconcile that, the fact that I got to survive when so many others didn't, um, and my children have survived when so many others didn't. And, you know, help and preeclampsia, I think, and again, Laura, you can correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but I've heard it called like the silent killer, that it, it kills mm-hmm. a lot of women around the world. Um, but it's not always detected because, um, you know, you can just die of stroke and, and other complications from it. So I don't know how many women it kills a, a year, but I think it's a lot. Um, and again, I didn't die because I'm here. And I just feel like the rest of my life I'm going to struggle with that. Um, sorry, that's a big... <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> that's a big... No, that's okay. That's to say. That is like, that's the burden of privilege right. that we... We don't get to pretend we don't have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, specifically about complications with <clears throat> women in pregnancy and childbirth, on top of just not having medical access or, you know, the different things that happen. So you had someone to call mm-hmm. who knew something, who then you could go see, and it could all be in a matter of minutes if you wanted. Like, you could, right. if you hadn't, you know, had other plans that day, you could drive, you could literally drive to any hospital people would see you because you are pregnant right and whether you have insurance whether you don't it doesn't matter you can walk in a hospital someone can see you and someone can save your life right it's just how it works here and i think you know the more you look at a global health perspective it's not even just that you don't have that set up it's just that you also even if you even if you understood or had the concept that that is like a service you could elicit it doesn't exist Mm -hmm. and so then there's you know then there's ways in which, you know, maybe the women who are telling you to stop going to the beach and stop working, <laughs> bet, you know, like their their inclination was for you to rest. Right. It's like there's something wrong. You have abnormal swelling. You look you don't look normal to us as a pregnant woman. So you should rest. Yeah. You know, and so there's different things where I feel like there are these like maybe what we would call like more natural over here we would call like natural in- interventions or yeah. But there are things that people do, but as you said, it's like if, if you advance to having something, you know, help syndrome, I think we'll probably post something on our yeah. page a little bit, kind of explaining that a little bit more for listeners. But if you continue to have problems with your platelets, if you continue to have problems with your blood pressure, it is, it is you know, critical. It's a mm-hmm. critical care need. It's something that if you were not pregnant, you'd be in the ICU and they would be worrying about your survival. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is... You know, again, kind of to be acknowledged in the fact that we do live in a place where you have you have the right and the access right now to getting that care. And I don't know. I think about that. I, I mean, I, I hope for you in the sense that the burden that you carry is to continue your work mm-hmm. and seeing women and letting women see themselves as people who need and deserve good care. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think I don't know. That's a big, it's a big story to hear. Yeah, and so one thing that is interesting is after I had my daughter, I was like, I'm not gonna have any more kids, right? That was so traumatic. And they told me I had a one in four chance of developing help again. Mm. And I was like, Yeah, that's way too high. <laughs> not gonna do that. And so we thought a little bit about adoption, and you know, maybe doing adoption through foster care and that's a whole nother thing which we will not talk about but we decided not to do that and I think when my daughter was around five I was just like she's just so delightful you know she's just so she'd had some pretty 
intense years. Um, and we were like, yeah, this is fine. And then around five, I was like, oh my gosh, she's so delightful. I think I want another one. But my husband was like, no, there's absolutely no way I'm ever doing that again, which surprised me because he's a pretty easygoing person. So usually, he usually does whatever I say. And so <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, why are you resisting this? So we went to see a few doctors and they made me feel really good about it. And I was in all these, I, was, I started getting in these support groups on Facebook. I don't know if you guys, you guys should do a whole episode about this. Like women in these Facebook groups who were like really help you process everything. Because nobody in my real life wanted to listen to me talk about what it was like having my daughter. You know, yeah. like nobody really wants to hear the details. So they don't, they don't want to be scared by them. No. Yeah. And, and they don't want to talk about like help me work through the possibility of getting pregnant again. But this was like a whole group about women saying, should we do this again? Women who've had help. And women that are literally addicted to this conversation. Yes. Yeah. And I, so when I was in, I was into it, you know, like yeah. checking it every day. And they just posted so many positive affirmations, like, you can do it, girl. And like, yeah. they posted all these like success stories of people who went on to have like two, three, four kids, you know, without help showing itself. And I just was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, my husband wasn't in these groups. So he was like, no, 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 <laughs> no. But finally I convinced him and we got pregnant really easily again. And um, and I, now I wonder if also it was like all these women that I was teaching and also I lived in a neighborhood with a lot of Somali refugees. And again, they're just so obsessed with kids and they are mm-hmm. always just like, when are you going to have another? When are you gonna? And I'd be like, well, I was really sick before. And like, so? <laughs> like you have another kid. That's what you do, right? And so maybe there's a little bit of peer pressure there, but um, – <laughs> I had really, I mean, I didn't have the option to have a midwife the second time around. And so going into it, I just felt really good knowing, like, I'm going to be really closely monitored. Nothing bad can happen to me because I will be so closely monitored. And so that's, that was my mantra this time. <laughs> Which, Laura, well, you're, making, little, you're making a face at me. She's a little different <laughs> mantra than the time before. <laughs> but I think that that's a real, that's, that's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, it, and it sounds like, based on your experience the first time around, you both lacked the tu- intuition to know what was going on in your body, but also... Not that you received bad care, but it sounds like potentially things weren't watched as closely as they could have been. Yeah, I mean... So you were probably very relieved to have that additional security. Yes, up until I got to the point where I was like... I remember first I would go on like every two weeks, and then I had to go on every week, and then I had to go on like every other day by the end of my pregnancy because my blood pressure started creeping up again, and protein in my urine, all that stuff started creeping up, and... So finally, they got to a point where I was like, I am so tired of being monitored. Like, mm-hmm. I had to do so many of those damn stress tests. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Just eat some crackers and, like, strap all these things to you. Like, how many hours did I spend doing that? And I just, the whole time, you're trying not to freak out. Right. Because yeah. that doesn't help your body. But you're also like, but is there something wrong or isn't there? And that was, like, that was the that was the theme of my second pregnancy. Is there something wrong or isn't there? Yeah. Um, and I was kind of borderline the whole time. And I think probably after 20 weeks, I was like, yeah, this is probably going to probably gonna be in the quarter percentage that gets it again. Um, but hopefully this time we can last longer. So I did not end up getting help. I did – finally when I was – on the day I was 36 weeks pregnant, they were like, okay, we are sick of this guessing game. Like, he's officially – your baby's officially big enough. We're, we're just doing this. And I think this time it was um, the high blood pressure and then um, my liver enzymes for some reason – so I went in to just get checked when I was 36 weeks pregnant, and they're like, okay, we're doing a C-section today. Like, Well, they asked me, like, did you eat lunch? And I was like, no. And they're like, okay, well, great, then we're doing it. And I was again, I was like, uh, <laughs> I didn't get to plan. And this time I have a five-year-old at home. Luckily my mom was there because things had been happening. So my mom was there to take care of my daughter and my husband could come. But that's another added stress. It's like when you already have another kid and you're going through sort of yeah. a hard pregnancy, like how do you emotionally take care? My daughter's very perceptive. And so how do you take care of your other kid but um the c-section went great my son was seven pounds like great like he looked like a real baby <laughs> like my daughter looked like this tiny weird, been, weird yeah. like little yeah. house elf you know and yeah. i was like but this is like a real baby you know and so and he i would have been huge if he had gone to town <laughs> seven pounds <laughs> i know so he was awesome like and he was just with me you know, after a few hours, he was just, like, with me the whole time. And I was like, this is surreal. Like, yeah. we did breastfeeding. It was great. You know, it was, like, really cool. And so after three days, they sent me home. And I was like, we did it. We beat the odds. This is amazing. Oh, my gosh. I was, like, so excited. I had one night at home with my baby and my daughter and my husband. And then the next day, this home health nurse came to just check 
um, my baby's vitals. And um, in Minnesota, they do that, which is amazing, right? They send somebody to your house. Um, And then she checked my blood pressure at the very end, and she was like, um, I need to go make a quick call. And I was like, oh, no. She didn't tell me, like, what my blood pressure was or anything, but she actually left. (laughs) And then she called me an hour later, and she was like, you need to go to the nearest emergency room as soon as possible. And the hospital I delivered my baby at was 30 minutes away. And she's like, you need to go to the hospital that's down the street from you right now. So I went, um, and they admitted me because my blood pressure was so high. And it turns out I had developed postpartum um, preeclampsia. And then I had to be in the hospital for five days, five days of trying to not have a stroke and trying to survive. And that one kind of broke me, broke my brain a little bit because... Again, I'd like, I truly thought we'd come yeah. out of it. Yeah. And this time, um, my baby wasn't a patient, but I was. And so, like, my husband had to be with me, or somebody had to be with me at all times. Like, I could never be left alone with my baby. And we were trying to do breastfeeding. And so it was just really complicated between, like, my daughter and my husband and the baby. And just, you know, I just wanted things to be easy. And so that one was. That one actually, I think, was much harder on me emotionally. And I think my own mortality was something I had to grapple with, mm. which the first time I was like, no, I didn't almost die. Like, I'm, I'm 26. I'm healthy and everything's fine. Like, that was weird. Whoa. You know, and I even told people, like, I almost died, but I didn't really believe it. And then this time I was very much forced to confront the fact that my body was not in my control. And, mm. um, yeah. So, anyways, that was my second <laughs> Now I and I totally I want to go back to the Facebook group at some point and be like, can we talk about the people who like didn't have that awesome second experience? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And can we just talk about like again? I was really glad for the encouragement and the support I got, but maybe it's my own fault. I didn't feel prepared for what to do when things got really bad. Yeah. Um, again. Because I chose this, right? And I think that's maybe I feel a lot of guilt about that too. Like I chose to get pregnant again, knowing the risks. So I have no right to complain <laughs> like if something bad happened. And so I think that's probably why I don't talk about it a lot because mm-hmm. I did it to myself. Well, it's, <laughs> I don't re- know. it's really hard to find that balance between like being open and prepared for the things that can happen and also like maintaining a a positive and like mm-hmm. nurturing position towards this thing you know this journey that you're embarking mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. because and it kind of comes back to you know what you said right before we started recording like I don't want to freak people out with this story and you know I, I resonate with that a lot like when I talk to women about I mean even right now like I'm really struggling with breastfeeding and it's like I have friends that are pregnant and I want them to know like breastfeeding can be really hard, but I also want them to be like, I also want to be like, you can do this. It's, it's, you're going to be fine, you know? And so it's really hard to find that balance between the two for yourself and when you communicate with others, because it's, it's, it's a really delicate thing. And we all also psychologically approach, you know, some people are just worst case scenario people. Like that's how they survive any situation is by mapping out every possible detail of how everything could go wrong. That's other me. people yeah. <laughs> other people can't even think about that or like they're traumatized just by just by thinking about it, you know? So it that's that's the hard part. Like you can't even properly navigate how how you alone will respond to those situations. And you certainly can't navigate like how everyone else is going right. to. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's that kind of that idea of like returning to that group is part of, you know, these kind of conversations with women is that at some point, you know, you, you had to decide for your family, like, is it in a way, in a way you said it's worth the risk. So mm-hmm. at first it wasn't worth the risk. 25 percent. That's that's not not a good idea. And then it's it's and it's something that people take on in so many different ways and whether that's like age so in the community we live in and the culture we live in women have children later in life and there's risks that come with mm-hmm. that or you know you know whether it's having preeclampsia or if you've had any kind of complications in the past i'm sure that melissa can relate to like after losing a child how do you go back and say this could happen again but i'm mm-hmm. willing mm-hmm. You know, and those women in that room 
I'm sure that even though in their culture it's the persistence of continuing to be pregnant and maybe it's still there's still those fears and you carry you carry that with you into your next experience Mm -hmm. even if you don't know if you even if you don't use it to like gather gather the supplies and prepare for the worst case scenario you carry it you know in that piece and like you said it was like redemptive like this isn't gonna happen oh we like we were worried this is gonna happen and it didn't we just went home Mm -hmm. and then just kind of letting yourself even more that that didn't happen like right. you, you you thought you'd made it across the line and then you had to kind of go back and yeah. I think that that is a powerful thing to share in a story because you in every case you had no idea but now you have these beautiful children I'm right. sure that you and Crispin don't like in any way regret <laughs> the decision to have them in the sense of like they're yours now yeah. and yeah they walk in your family yeah it's it's so interesting to even just look at my kids and be like, yeah, they were so hard earned. Like mm-hmm. every kid is really, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, there is something really, really special about just saying we waited so long for you and, hmm. you know, we did struggle to see you be here with us. So that is really beautiful. Yeah. It doesn't negate the fact that there's still kids that. <laughs> Yeah, are really grumpy, like I mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, the grumpy days are not not the best yeah. for sure. Okay, one thing that maybe we could talk about for a minute is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. is this? I've been thinking about this, and I feel like I'm sort of losing this thought. But based on some of this, like inspiration around women and childbirth, and like you can do it, and you're awesome. I don't think anybody ever prepared me for the reality that your life experiences can make you weaker the Hmm. older you get. And I always thought you're just supposed to get stronger and stronger and stronger. The more terrible things happen to you, the more you overcome, the stronger you are. Hmm. But I feel weaker in some ways and stronger in others. Mm -hmm. But I feel like if if bad things happen, I'm just totally floored. Like... um, for instance, like Time Magazine's Women of Woman of the Year, right? 2014 mm-hmm. was this nurse from Liberia. Is that correct? And she just died in childbirth yeah. because of stigma against her. And I'm just like, I'm sorry. I'm going to need a few hours to just cry about that. Yeah. You know, I don't feel like I'm a strong person mentally anymore <laughs> when it comes to women or... Um, childbirth or infant death or any of that it's just like like melissa like your story that i just heard through instagram and through your husband's blog like i just feel like it just floored me and and maybe that's appropriate maybe that's a maybe that's the appropriate response but i just sometimes i feel like all of this like you survived you're awesome you're resilient i'm like yeah i did survive but i am totally not the same person anymore it breaks you and yeah. I feel like a broken person. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's something we can talk about, too, because I just always hear this thing like, you did it. You're awesome. You're powerful. But I'm like, and now you're going to cry all the time. You're yeah. never going to stop. That's <laughs> like how it feels like to me. I, I really resonate with that. And I very much think, I mean, I feel like a stronger person in many ways. I also feel like a more broken person than I ever was before I had kids in general, even even before my first. And I think for me, like really having my first Aiden was opened the door to to anxiety in my life that I mm. did not mm. I I had no no frame of reference for it before I had had my first kid. Like I was not an anxious person. And for you know, for for better, for worse, um and and through all the work that I've done since that time, like I can say, like I am, I am like more broken in this way, and this is like, this is an area of like, an area in my life that can cause me pain that I didn't used to suffer, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I think too, like you know, losing a child and all of that certainly has been a very breaking experience and certainly a strengthening experience as well. Um, but there's just like, there's just ways that, yeah, it changes you and you don't get to go back. Like I don't, I don't, I think some things don't get rebuilt. Mm -hmm. Like I don't think they can be rebuilt. There's certain, you know, my favorite, my favorite quote of all time is from that Leonard Cohen song. Um, there's a crack in everything. Mm -hmm. That's how the light gets in. 
and I, I, for me, that's like, that's all I can cling to is that like the crack's not going to go away. Like I am fundamentally broken in this way. And all I can hold to is that there's more light that gets in, Mm. you know, and that this is who I am now. Like this is, this is now, this is now the whole me. Like I, I added this part to me and it's not all good. It's not just like everything turns out for, you know, for the best and like everything happens for a reason. It's like, no, there's this part of me that's like not great and it's there and it's, it's going to be there. Hmm. Sorry, I'm thinking about and even just the awareness piece where it's like almost like you said, like, I didn't even know this was here. Then I had a kid and that's what that's what kind of illuminated it, Hmm. you know, or maybe I didn't know this was here. And then I met this person. I read this story. And I think we're living in a time of that. We're living in a time of people hearing that story or having that moment that then kind of illuminates this, like whether it's the disparity of morbidity and mortality in women and children in in the world, or if it's the disparity of how women are treated in America or whatever the disparity Mm -hmm. is. I think that that's, that's the piece that we get to kind of like embrace that part of us that is tough mm-hmm. to, to kind of look at because the reality is we're all broken people and different experiences are really po- like really powerful or really in- like kind of intensify that like almost mm-hmm. like turn on the fire underneath mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that attracts us to talking about motherhood or birth is that for women for many many women that is the experience it's like you're young you're this young girl who grew up in the United States you had this huge thing happen to you and it really changed a lot of different mm-hmm. trajectories. You already had these other experiences that had kind of put you on the path that you were on for a lot of women becoming a mother. And then they kind of become this different kind of being. Like whether it's yeah. like I, I cry all the time or like I literally can't even face like my kid being sick. Mm. Like yeah. Yeah. my kid got a cold and I thought like the world was over. Yep. And I used to like only think the world was over when it was like talking about the Holocaust. <laughs> like what? why did I now mm-hmm. just become this like sensitive like everything is so deep and so sensitive and I think it's it is it's like you are opening up chambers of your being you don't know about and I think the increased sensitivity is if it's brokenness if that's what we're calling it that's a good thing yeah it's a great space to be in and it's a great space to share with other people because the reality is mostly we're just kind of trying to walk around hiding that yeah Yeah. (laughs) although it's funny because my husband's a counselor and so he was like, um, yeah, it's like really great for you to like think all these things, but <laughs> you can't live your entire life doing that. You know, yeah. there's this mm-hmm. book called Staring at the Sun and about people and how we approach thinking about our own mortality. And like you can only really think about your mortality or your kids' mortality every so often. Right. right. You can't spend your whole life staring directly into the sun, basically. Yeah. And so yeah, for me and my husband's, you know, been very helpful. Like, how do you keep that part of yourself like I have this part of myself any conversation I'm in I want to bring it back to like the fundamental inequalities in the world right and what is our role in that and um also like the veil between us and others is so so fake like Mm -hmm. like I feel close to people who are in prison or people who live in other countries or people you know right now everything going on in our current administration like families being faced with the risk of deportation like I do not have that risk but I know people who do and I'm like we are all so much closer to that than we want to believe right Mm -hmm. and so I think that is what I am trying to move forward after my experiences with my children in childbirth and my experiences with um, the communities I've lived in is how do we keep this a part of our life without totally burning out or totally Mm -hmm going into like full-blown panic attacks all the time because I do struggle with those (laughs) so yeah yeah just how do we make this sustainable I don't have that figured out but I am trying to view it as a a blessing of sorts I don't know I don't know if I like that word sorry that's okay we can come up with a better word (laughs) (laughs) a gift I don't know (laughs) yeah I my therapist talks about temporal boundaries which is a really helpful concept for me because for me anxiety about anything in life whether it's politics or like you know my kid having a bad morning is that I'm like oh shit oh shit oh shit oh shit this is what this means for the future Mm -hmm. like you're you're grumpy this morning you're 
obviously a sociopath and obviously you'll be an anal retentive 25 year old that doesn't call home like obviously (laughs) I mean it's super obvious to me (laughs) and just like anything you know going on in politics or in in the world around us in the relationships that we have like you know you're talking about these you know these really marginalized communities and it's so easy to just like for the fear to come in when you think about like the domino effect of all of these Mm -hmm. things. And, and it's been really helpful for me recently to like, just think about that temporal boundaries piece. Like you can only go so far back and you can only go so far forward and you can only do that. Like you said, so often you can only think about your mortality or, you know, how badly this situation is going or how horrible things are in the world or how many effing colds your kid has gotten this winter. Like you can only dwell on that so much. (laughs) It's just not, fruitful you know yeah it's a hard hard thing to do Mm. though yeah so I know one of the um first interactions that we had through social media was when you had made some comment in a post about like about anxiety and about like some like basically like the connection that you have to your kids and like certain things that they do being sort of that like primary um outlet for your anxiety and so and and I immediately the way you worded it and I don't remember exactly what it was but the way you worded I was like that I feel like I could have written that Mm. little sentence like that is so my experience of mother anxiety so I'm curious did you start experiencing that with your with your first daughter was that something that kind of transcended both of your postpartum experiences or just something that like was already in part of your life that was magnified during that time yeah with my daughter it wasn't quite like that I mean the doctors and everything had really freaked us out as far as like you need to she's a premature baby like you need to treat her such so we didn't go anywhere for like the first six months and she wasn't allowed to be in daycare or like a nursery for her first year of life we were obsessed with hand sanitizer but we just did it. We're like, okay, that's fine. And she never got sick because we never did anything and nobody ever came over. Um, and so she was fine. With my son, he got, um, he had like a meningitis scare when he was six weeks old. So I'd only been out of the hospital like four and a half weeks. And then my baby had a fever. And I'm like, I'm sure it's fine. It has to be fine because we've had enough shit happen. <laughs> but I walked him again to the hospital that was closest to us. And they were like, oh, no, we're admitting him and we're doing a spinal tap right now. And I was just it was just me and him. And I'm just like, I can't. You've had too I many of those moments. <laughs> like, I can't oh, not that... do this. And so he was in there for three days and he wouldn't sleep at night. And so I didn't sleep for like three nights. And of course, that does a wonder on your mental health. I just remember being like, that's it. I'm going to just sit with my baby the rest of my life in my house yeah. and nothing bad will ever happen to him. And I will make it so. And it was, like, so creepy. You know when people say Mama Bear, you have, like, this good image? I was like, I'm an insane person who was, like, grasping. I feel like I feel like I was digging my nails into the earth, hmm. just saying, I will save my baby, and nothing bad will ever happen to me or him ever again, which obviously is not in my power <laughs> to do. Um, but that is when I feel like I started my real journey with mm-hmm. um, anxiety and um, fear of the future. And I still also at the same time was processing the fact that my baby got better, you know, um, yeah. when I'd heard. I've been hearing for years these stories of children who did not get better. And so I just thought um, and I, I was raised an evangelical Christian. I still consider myself a Christian. But on top of everything going on with me and just like the flashbacks of being at the hospital and everything was this sense of like the world is fundamentally awful. Hmm. And so like my own faith was really tested. Um, so I, it had a lot of components, but I would say that was like my, uh, my real breaking point. And now it's actually getting really better. And I think that's good for me to even acknowledge out loud. Mm-hmm. Like when my child gets sick now, my baby gets sick, I don't freak out. But I would say the first year of his life, Oh my gosh, if he had a fever, which he got fevers all the time. He's like a fever baby. Maybe <laughs> maybe kids are all different. Like my daughter never got fevers, but maybe yeah. like he gets fevers at the drop of a hat and I'm just like <gasps> Do we have to go to the hospital? Do we like uh, 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 and I just freak yeah. the heck out and futurize and 
now he's going to have meningitis or, you know, something terrible is going to happen. And now, you know, he's 20 months old and that doesn't happen anymore. Like I can just think like I am his mom. I know if he truly doesn't feel good, like we will figure out he's not going to die in the middle of the night. And so it, it is getting better, but it is crazy how like a cough or a fever could just make me be like, my my babies are going to die at some point in my life and I can't do anything mm-hmm. to stop it. Like, who goes there when your kid has a fever? Well, I did, you know, for a really long time. So oh, I do too. So great. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just a, it's it becomes a, a well-worn path yeah. in your mind. Like, it's just, I, I you know, I have, a th- I have a three-week-old right now and my... I, I definitely have v- way less anxiety in general with her than I did with Aiden. But the moments where I do get anxious, it's like it's like through the roof mm-hmm. instantly. Like she's not breathing. She's dead. She's like, you know, mm-hmm. horrible things are happening. With Aiden, it was more like the future stuff. Like, oh, n- this means he's going to be like this. Or like our our life will always look like this and this really sucks. I can't handle it. You know, this is like more sort of like generally low line. And then these peaks of like everything bad is happening, you know? Um, And I think you just, your mind is just, no matter how much, no matter how mindful we are, there's just these, like these grooves that, you know, you can, your mind can just go down that path. That's what it felt like. Yeah. Your mind gets stuck in a rut. Yeah. And it takes a lot of work. It's a lot of work. To put it on a different path. That's what it feels like. It really is a lot of work. And it's good work. It's good work. And it does pay off in the end. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to even, like, remind myself. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm not in that same place. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. It's very, you know, it's, like we've talked about, an intense story and full of, you've had way too many of those, like, oh, crap, this is happening right now moment. So hopefully you don't have... It's been very calm for a while now. Yeah, so. good. <laughs> hopefully go. this is like your new your new normal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, despite how you think women may hear your story, I think it will actually be very encouraging to women because, um, you know, things... Not only do things happen, but we all, we all approach it differently. Mm-hmm. And I think that hearing... Hearing your story is, it just shows the strength that you do have. Mm. Yeah. And if you've enjoyed listening to Danielle talk, you will definitely enjoy reading her writing. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to share with us some ways people could uh, hear what you're having to say about the world today, Danielle. Yeah. So I write as D.L. Mayfield under my initials. And yeah, you can find me at dlmayfield.com. I wrote a book about my life and work with refugees. Um, I just, I have like one essay in there about childbirth, but the rest is not really about that, but that's okay. Yeah. It's called Assimilate or Go Home. (laughs) Awesome. Weird title. (laughs) Well, we'll share in the show notes some more information about HELP Syndrome as well as Mm -hmm. links to Danielle's work and social media accounts so you can find her there. And thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth and being a part of this community. We'd love for you to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to rate us in iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. We'd also love to hear from you at motherbirth.co if you have any ideas for topics for us to cover or if you'd like to be on the show. I think it goes without saying, but Mother Birth is a personal podcast created by Laura and Lisa. It's intended as general information. It doesn't constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care if you're pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period. 